we're going to talk about a guy today. Do you remember back years ago, the cartoon Underdog? There's no need to fear, Underdog is here. And, and Underdog was, uh, I don't know, he's kind of a beagle-looking thing. And uh, in, his, in his life, he was a shoeshine boy. But his alter ego was underdog, and whenever his love interest was uh, sweet Polly purebred, when she got in trouble and the villains were after her, underdog would come and, and bail her out. And he always spoke in rhyming couplets. There's no need to fear, underdog is here. He was, so he was always rhyming. And, and the, the men and women that we've looked at so far... Uh, have taught us quite a bit about this whole thing of idea of maybe being an underdog. But they also have taught us that anyone who is called of God is also a kingdom builder. We've been called to build the kingdom. And most of you cheer for the underdog. You know, the, uh, you, you uh, watch the, the Grinch that stole Christmas and you're going to cheer for the underdog. Our, our favorite is little, little Max. The, they put the reindeer antler on his head, and he's just having all kinds of trouble. And we feel bad for the Who's, and, and then we cheer for the Grinch. He really wasn't the underdog, but he, he got his life together. So when an unknown, unlikely, and overmatched individual goes up against the big guy and wins, we really feel good. We cheer. And I think sometimes it's because we see a little bit of the underdog in us. We don't have a ring that has an S on it, and, and we don't have a cape and fly around the city saving things, but uh, we do like it when we can see someone who really is unlikely achieve great victory. We're going to look at uh, an underdog in the book of Judges today. There's a negative side to this book. Judges 17.6 says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Man, does that sound familiar? Talk about the Bible being uh, contemporary. Joshua led the nation of Israel into the land, defeated 31 kings in the process. But in Judges, the book, Israel fails miserably. The people did not drive the enemies out of the land. The, the nation experienced this cycle of slavery time and again. You know, you, you have an enemy, you overcome them, and compromise can set in. God says, drive them out of the land. And what they do is that there's this, this uh, pretty little Moab, Moabite girl batting her baby browns at whoever and and they fall in love, and their hearts go pity-pat. And, and so they knew they shouldn't get married, but they did. They knew they shouldn't have gotten in business with the chariot maker, but they did. They were good friends. You know, they, he was the, 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 the godson, to, godfather to your, to your children. I mean, they, these, were, these were good people who God said... Drive them out of the land. And it got them in trouble. Because pretty soon they also started embracing 
some of the foreign uh, deities that the Moabite people had. But God read the positive side of this as God raised up judges, men and women of faith, unknown and unlikely heroes to release them from this bondage. And so we're going to examine the hero Ehud in Judges 3, 11 through 31. It's a long passage of scripture and I've, I've uh, changed from the new, uh, new uh, living translation uh, to the New American Standard because it gives a little bit better uh, sense of, of uh, the original Hebrew. Then the land had rest for 40 years and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, Benjamite, a left-handed man. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's an important thing to note. Uh, we'll be talking about that. A left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, 18 inches. <coughs> And he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to the king. And now Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, Psst, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who had attended him left, and Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud also went after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Yeah, Hebrew is very, very earthy, so uh, I, I want you to get the drift of, of, of how uh, graphic this is. Then Ehud went into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked the door. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. They waited until they became anxious, but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key, and they opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead." Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them, and he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab, and they did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men. These weren't the reserves. These were the, these were the fighting fighters. And no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. 
Now, in this story, we find a cycle that repeats itself throughout the book of Judges. Some have labeled it the cycle of sin. There is a, a, a apostasy, which is the first stage. They leave their God, and uh, they turn to sinful pursuits, and they replace the worship of God with the worship of false idols. And then there comes the second stage of servitude. They, they end up serving the people that they should have thrown out in the beginning. And then the third stage is supplication. They cry out to God, save us. In the fourth stage, God, because he is faithful to his people, sends a deliverer or salvation. And God raised up Ehud, who came to Gilgal to present his tri- tribute. And then uh, he led the, uh, the route uh, of, a, of the Moabs, Moabites and, and uh, killed them. You know, at first, this guy doesn't seem like the type of person that you want to imitate. Uh, I want to tell you a story about a guy I went to high school with. His name was Galen Jones. Galen was a lot like Ehud. In high school, he was a loner. He had no friends. He kept to himself. He even ate lunch by himself. Didn't want to be around people. He wore the same clothes every day. Same clothes. Black pants, black shirt, black, uh, black checkered shirt, and, and black shoes. And he was always clean. Never needed a haircut. Always clean shaven. What people didn't know about Galen was he was a 4.0 student all the way through high school. In fact, uh, all the way through his educational system, he never got anything but A's. Brilliant guy. Nobody knew that, though. He just looked like a big, dumb old hick. And we worked together on a shop project uh, in school, so I got to know him a little bit. And one of the other things nobody knew, he worked after school and either took a bus or rode his bicycle. He graduated and was the class valedictorian, but didn't go because he had a chance to work. See, no one knew that he was the sole support of his mother and sister. He graduated and he got drafted. He was also killed in Vietnam. This was a young man no one would want to imitate, yet he had more character and courage than most adults that I knew at that time. In this morning's passage, we find that, that the man Ehud is a really of tremendous uh, character too. We know some things about his makeup. He, he must have been trustwor- a trustworthy invid- individual because he was given the responsibility of taking the tribute, you know, kind of buy off the king, get him off our backs. So he was chosen to take it to, uh, to the king. And he must have been courageous because he was willing to go uh, alone. He didn't take an army. He didn't have uh, a lot of firepower. He took a two-edged eight, uh, 18-inch sword. But he was a, I think he was a military strategist because he plotted to kill Eglon, to get him alone, to tantalize him with something very special. You know, I got news for you. He planned the escape route and finally he rallied all of Israel to wipe them out. So instead of attacking the city, he went down to the Jordan because he knew the Moabites were going to go down there to cross. And so he outfoxed them, caught them at the ford, and killed him, 10,000 men. 
And today I want to make some observations about this guy. And I believe that we can apply them to our lives today. The first thing is, Ehud wasn't afraid to confront the enemy. Wasn't afraid to confront the enemy. The second thing, a physical disability didn't stop him. Well, what do you mean physical disability? He was left-handed, but I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a minute. And the third thing, Ehud really didn't rely on his own strength for victory, but he relied on, the faith, on his faith in God. So you can't read this book without talking about sin. You know, for instance, sin can grow to an obese state. I uh, was prompted to get this surgery because my doctor wrote on, the, on my, my chart, I was morbidly, morbid. Now, does morbid sound like a good thing? I was morbidly obese. Well, I don't want to be that. But sin is that way. We see this in Eglon. And if if, if we let sin go unchecked, it just grows. And it becomes terribly fat and ugly and unwieldy. And sin is ugly. And I think the story of Ehud has tremendous shock value. We can try to justify sin. We can paint it pretty colors. We can deny its importance or relevance. But when we look at it for what it is, sin is just plain out ugly, morbid, obese, gross, disgusting, gory. We learn in this account that people are content to stay enslaved for a long period of time. So it took Israel 18 years of slavery before they got to the place of crying out and saying, Lord, help. And I, I got to ask myself, why, why, why did I wait so long? Why do, why do people wait so long? Why do we wait so long when we become addicted to patterns of sin? Maybe it's because we're afraid or ashamed to face the reality or the ugliness or the attractiveness of our sin. Maybe Maybe we feel we're going to lose something we enjoy too much. Sin can be comfortable. Sin can be really, really comfortable. Maybe we're content to remain where we are and our misery becomes our friend. we got a Redeemer. We have a Deliverer. We have a Savior whose name is Jesus. And he, He saves us from the dominion and the power of our sin. Whether it's been 8 or 18 years, we can cry out to God and He will deliver us. We can turn away from sin and he's going to free us from our enslavement and our patterns to addictions. And we can see the result of coming to Christ, turning away from our idols and having that deliverance. The result is peace. Paul writes in uh, uh, the, the, the story goes on that there was rest in the land after they were delivered for 80 years. Paul writes in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin makes us miserable. It robs us of all our sense of joy and well-being. But Jesus Christ gives us peace. So, But God gives us this new life in Christ and gives us rest from our enslavement to sin. And Ehud accepted his potential in God's eye. So that brings us to the second point, that a physical disability didn't stop him. You know, according to the Scientific American, 15% of all citizens, all Americans in the 
in, in, all Americans, are left-handed. 15%. Males are twice as likely to be left-handed as females, and left-handers are more... Any, who's left-handed in here? That figures. Left-handers are more likely to be geniuses. Mensa. 20% of all Mensa members report being left-handed. These are the smartest of the smart. The literal translation of this particular phrase when we, when we talk about, and Ehud was left-handed, the literal translation is, is hindered in the right hand. Twice the text says that he put a sword on his right side because he was left-handed. You know, you don't draw it like this, you draw it like this. Ehud, we, we come to know, uh, came from the, the tribe of, of Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, and it's a term of strength. So the big deal of being left-handed, what's, what's the point? Well, the point is he was hindered in the right hand. He was weak and physically limited. No place else does it talk about anybody being left-handed in this, <coughs> in this passage. Never talked about Jesus being left-handed. I don't know if he was left-handed or right-handed. He could have been ambidextrous. I don't know. But I believe that this phrase isn't merely pointing to the fact that he had used his left hand more than his right, but that he couldn't use his right hand for some unspecified reason. He was an unlikely hero, a man who was handicapped and not well-known. He was an underdog. He was, he was an obscure person who was a man whom God chose to use for his glory. An obscure person. Somebody that people don't know. An unlikely hero. Maybe has a, a disability of some sort. He could have very easily dwelled on his disability and doubted his value to God. He could have very easily passed on the opportunity of taking the tribute to Eglon and passing up the opportunity to deal with him. He could, he, Ehud could have doubted and said, how could God possibly use me? Look at all these things that I got going against me. How in the world is God going to be able to use me? He didn't. He accepted his potential in God's eyes and he rested in his value to God. And we enter, in, encounter these people all throughout the book of, of Judges. What we have here are underdogs, obscure people. Men and women whom God chose to use for his glory. The all-time biggest underdog in the world was Jesus. You know, can anything good come from, out of Nazareth? You know, the son of a carpenter. That, that wasn't a statement of fact, that was a term of derision. Isaiah says in 52-3, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet Jesus accomplished the single most important uh, act in history. He died for our sins and becoming the greatest hero of all time. Nobody recognized him when he came on the scene. There was no red carpet, no fanfare. Jesus was an underdog. He was an unlikely hero. Today, as, as believers, we're considered social underdogs. You know that? We can feel handicapped. We can feel we don't have the right credentials. We can, 
We can feel that our family background isn't good enough. or We're just too ordinary. There's even a movement today called white privilege. It's important to see what this looks like in light of Christianity. It's the level of advantage that comes with being seen as the norm in America. It automatically confers uh, in, in introspective, irrespective of wealth or gender or other factors, it makes life smoother, but something you, don't barely, you barely notice unless it was taken away from you. Or unless it had never applied to you in the first place. But our text tells us that God can use us in amazing ways. There's, there's, no, there's no privilege at the, at the base of the cross. We are all equal in the sight of God. This room, I think, is filled with possible ehudes. It doesn't matter what your social, what your family background is. It doesn't matter if you're limited in some capacity. God sees you as very much more than just ordinary. He, he takes each one of us with our backgrounds and with our different talents and our different gifts, and he molds us uniquely into a representation of himself. And we don't have to look alike, and we don't. I, I stand here and, and, and look at you, and, and none of us look the same. He uses each one of us in unique ways, and God is excited about how he wants to use you. He's excited about that. And he's going to use each of you differently as long as you want to be used as a kingdom builder in his, to his glory. The problem is, we've been told lies so long that we've started to believe them. And we start thinking that we're worthless, useless, have no value. Denying the truths of Scripture, the miracle of Christianity is when God takes someone ordinary, someone like just like just you and me, and uses us for His glory. That's the miracle. He doesn't heal all the problems or the handicaps. The miracle is He uses us when we're limited, and this is how He used Ehud. He takes a life that the world discards and uses it for His glory. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, Instead, God chose things of the world the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Sometimes it takes only one person to, vote, to motivate many into righteousness. And that's what happened here. He was willing to go back, go on the attack first, but then he blew the trumpet and Israel joined the battle and they routed the enemy. We live in similar times today in the book of Judges, don't we? We, we see in our country that everyone does right in their own eyes. And our world is coming apart at the seams. Immorality and tolerance for sin is running rampant. But then there are the Ehuds, the people who are willing to do whatever God wants them to do, using whatever God has given them to use. And the people in power who are not faith believers reject that. We are, as Christians, pariah to the nation. Just, just read the headlines. You are not welcome as a Christian. You are not popular 
you've got to be spectacular, a spectacular individual to rise up in power because, or, or allow yourself to be used of God and God places you in that place. And then there's the, the naysayers who will say that, well, just look at that person's past. How can they claim to be a Christian? Phonies. God wants to use us however he can use us. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you, do you believe that God can use you in these ways, that you're valuable, that you're remarkable, that you're important to him? Do you believe that? Or is this just a, okay, yeah. Communion, then we get to go home. You know, I think that it's important that you understand that you're valuable and God thinks you're great at something. And you may not think so, but in God's eyes you are. You're great at something. Even as kids. Even if you're bound by some physical disability. You're not as young as you used to be. You're not as fleet of foot. You don't have the, the capacity to, to be able to, to do things like you did. But if you're willing, God's going to accept your potential. The last thing, Ehud didn't rely on his own strength for victory, but in God's faith. And we see through uh, Judges 3.28, Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across Moab, preventing everyone from crossing. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.5, It's not that we think we're qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Paul humbly served humbly humbly in the Spirit's power, fully acknowledging that his adequacy was from Jesus Christ. Our adequacy is totally from Jesus Christ, not anything that we can do. In the church of Christ, we don't need more knowledge, more programs or degrees. We need more faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is how the world views effectiveness with education, money, and fame. But God, all he requires is faith. And this is why he chooses the weak and the limited. Because he can't use the proud. Let me say that again. He chooses the weak and the limited because he cannot use the proud. People who are handicapped and limited are rich in faith. They have great resources in God made available to them. So, concluding this, I think our text this morning encourages us in three ways. Uh, Ehud wasn't afraid to confront the enemy. We need to be willing to confront sin in our lives and stand for the the cause of Christ. A physical disability... didn't stop him. No matter how weak or limited we might feel, we're capable of great things in God. And he didn't rely on his own strength for victory, but his faith in God. We need to remember, friends, that it's unreserved faith in the strength and grace of our living God that will enable us to do what he wants us to do. We may be weak, but he is strong. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you humbly and we come to you with with the deepest adoration 
Lord, we ask that you would bind these, these thoughts to our hearts today. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be men and women of faith. Lord, we want to serve you in a way that is going to please you to the fullest, our fullest capacity. Lord, we, we truly want to be the Ehuds of the world. Lord, I pray for this church that those who may be struggling with that feeling of weakness may find their strength in you. And now, Lord, as we prepare to uh, examine our hearts, as we look forward to the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would reveal any unconfessed sin that we may not take of the table unworthily. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.